Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Oh, this is another edition of Person I've Had on My List for a Million Years. We've both had a lot of them lately. I'm trying to, like, revisit that list and not just put names on it and then hide it on my phone and not think about it again and then later be like, I don't know what to talk about. It's like, yeah, hey, Brainiac, you have a whole list of things that you've wanted to talk about. I had a, an internal conversation recently about whether to, like, just scrap my shortlist and start over because it's gotten so long and so many of the names now I just keep looking at and not not doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm picking and choosing. Um, yeah, this is, is one that I have wanted to do for a while. You know, it's architectural, which I guess follows in my... <laughs> My uh, discussions of people in the arts. But it also, I I had come upon um, a thing recently where I literally overheard a kid in an airport talking to his mom about where skyscrapers came from. Like, when did buildings get so tall? And I was mm-hmm. like, don't tell him, don't tell him. But I know, uh, at least <laughs> I know the start. And I figured now is as good a time as any to talk about that. So we are talking about um, a man who is, to me, similar to Jean-Baptiste Lully in that he was kind of a pain in the neck to people that knew him. Uh, but was also, you know, certainly has been lauded as a genius. And I think uh, a little bit more than Lully in his time, there were people that liked him and <laughs> tried tried to, to make way for him even after his, like, heyday was done. But um, if you have ever heard the phrase form follows function, that is attributed to this man. And you will see why as we talk about his work and how it's often inspired by nature and how he had this whole ideology about architecture in the United States and how architecture 
should have its own unique American identity and how he really tried to push boundaries in that regard and it didn't always work out. But um, so today we are talking about Louis Henry Sullivan, or sometimes you'll see it Louis Henri Sullivan, because his mother was Swiss. Uh, he seemed to not really use the middle name so much that I saw uh, one way or the other. I think he just let it be Americanized and let people do what they preferred. <laughs> so Louis Henry, or Henri Sullivan, was born September 3rd, 1856 in Boston, Massachusetts. His father, Patrick Sullivan, was Irish and taught dance, and his mother, Adrienne Francoise Liszt, as Holly just said, was Swiss. He later wrote of her, quote, she seemed French, but not wholly so, which I love that quote. Louis was their second child. He had a brother named Albert Walter Sullivan, who was two years older. When the boys were young, the Sullivans spent at least one summer on Cape Ann in a small area known as Folly Cove, Louis later relayed that he almost drowned there one day and that a local farmer had saved him. In 1869, the Sullivans moved to Chicago, Illinois, but Louis didn't go with them. He stayed with his grandparents outside of Boston. Sullivan wrote about all of this in his autobiography in a pretty quaint way, noting that his grandparents really desperately wanted one of their grandchildren to live with them. This autobiography, which we'll quote from a lot, is in the third person. And he wrote, quote, the farm had been but recently acquired and the child appeared shortly thereafter as a greedy parasite to absorb that affection, that abundant warmth of heart, which only grandma and grandpa have the intuitive folly to bestow. In short, they loved him and kept him bodily clean. Louis attended public school, which he described as a dreary prison, but he also said he didn't have any real memories of it, calling this time a, quote, gray blank. When writing of his early years, Sullivan describes himself as, quote, not an enfant terrible, but rather an independent, isolated compound of fury, curiosity, and tenderness. He hated most of his school lessons because they were perpetually pondering abstract questions featuring fictional scenarios, Occasionally, he'd kind of rally and do really well with his schoolwork for a while to try to please his grandmother, but then he would get bored again and kind of stop achieving. He was often in trouble and described being whipped across the hands with a rattan in class. By his own account, he was his grandparents' pet. They let him do largely as he pleased, and that involved a lot of gardening as a boy. He often skipped school and wandered around the countryside, he also describes being just enthralled anytime he saw people at work. The idea of work and being industrious was intriguing to him. Yeah, he was like this kid that was kind of rebellious, but not in a troublemakery kind of way. He writes about how, like, he was not one of those boys that, like, in the stereotypical way of the day, wanted to get in fights and make messes and be dirty. He just, like, wanted to go sit in fields and look at flowers and grasses. Watch farmers <laughs> doing their thing. Yeah, yes. Uh, Louis enrolled at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1872 to study architecture. And at the time, the program, which came to be known as the School of Architecture and Planning, was still very new. 
It had been founded in 1865 by architect William Robert Ware. Initially, the program was a one- or two-year course of study, set up as sort of like a graduate program. You either had to have had an undergraduate degree or some experience in the field to enroll in it. And when Sullivan enrolled, the program had only been actively offering formal education for about four years, because prior to 1868, that three years between the founding and then, the curriculum was still in its planning stages. But even though the program was not long, Sullivan got frustrated with it. He left less than a year in. He thought he might go to Paris to study in the architecture program at École de Beaux-Arts, but he ended up taking the path of an apprentice working at the Furness and Hewitt firm of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He didn't stay there long either, though, just a few months. Sullivan's next move was to Chicago. By the end of 1873, he had secured a job there in William LeBaron Jenny's office. Jenny had established his office in Chicago after having been an engineering officer in the U.S. Civil War. This would have seemed like a perfect fit, but Sullivan was still restless, and there just wasn't enough money flowing into construction to keep him occupied. In 1874, he finally set out for Paris with the intent to study there. So this might seem like Louis Sullivan was finally achieving his dream, but if it was, he really wasn't any more focused at École de Beaux-Arts than he had been anywhere else. It's worth noting that he would have been just about 18 at this point. Maybe it's not all that surprising that he found himself distracted by the possibilities of his time in Europe. I'm 47. I would be distracted. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of studying, he did things like tour Italy. He was incredibly moved by the art of Michelangelo, which he saw for the first time while visiting Rome. He spent two full days in the Sistine Chapel, mostly by himself, and in his words, quote, communed in the silence with a Superman. Yeah, he really held Michelangelo in extraordinarily high regard. He also spent a little time in the workshop of Emile Vaudremey, who taught at Beaux-Arts. So even though Sullivan wasn't a great student, it does seem like his educators saw some promise in him. And he had been the only American student admitted into the school that year. That was something that was made possible by him working pretty quickly to gain a fluency in French just so he could pass the entrance exams. He was so smart and seemed so full of promise, but none of the avenues of study that he tried really gave him anything but frustration, that he wasn't creating more and learning history less. He kind of felt like he was getting, like, memorized previous forms of architecture rather than being taught how to actually do things. He left Paris after less than a year there and returned to Chicago in the early summer of 1875. Initially, Sullivan's work in Chicago after he returned from Europe was as a contractor draftsman. This freelance life gave him an opportunity to work with a lot of architecture offices to see what he liked. During these contract jobs, Sullivan was introduced to a man named Dankmar Adler. Adler was 12 years older than Louis Sullivan. He'd been born in Prussia on July 3rd, 1844, and moved to the United States at the age of 10. While he was still a teenager, Adler started studying architecture. In 1861, he moved to Chicago, found work as a draftsman working under Augustus Bauer. Adler was in the middle of a rapid rise in the architectural world when the U.S. Civil War began. He served in the war and then immediately went back to Chicago when it ended, 
once again with Bauer initially, although he worked for several other firms as well. He started a firm with Edward Burling in 1871. In 1879, Sullivan started working for Adler's office. This was the same year that Adler famously designed Chicago's Central Music Hall, which established many of the standards of the music venues that followed. One reason this structure became the prototype of music halls around the city and then around the country was that Adler had carefully designed it to optimize the building's acoustics for musical performance. Any biography you see of Adler, they talk about how acoustics were like his area of expertise. The project was one that Adler undertook as an independent architect after he broke from his previous business partner, Edward Burling. After two years of work at the Adler firm and having hand-designed some incredible ornamentation for various projects, Louis Sullivan was made partner, and the firm's name was updated to Adler and Sullivan Architects. And at this point, things really took off for both of them, because they were a perfect combination. Adler had this deep understanding of things like acoustics and engineering, but he didn't have as much of a knack for the creative design aspects of the job, and that was where Sullivan really shone. There's a reason Chicago had so many construction projects going on in the 1880s. This was after the 1871 Chicago Fire. So yes, that's the fire with the O'Leary cow mythology. The actual cause of the initial fire is not known, but after it started in the southwest quadrant of the city, it spread really rapidly thanks to hot, dry conditions. Over the course of a day and a half, it destroyed three and a half square miles of the city. An estimated 100,000 people lost their homes. Several hundred people died. After this tragedy, the city needed to rebuild a lot of infrastructure, residences, government, and commercial buildings. Simultaneously, it also expanded well beyond its pre-fire footprint. So for architects in the 1880s, there was a steady stream of work. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Chicago history you can look up around, like, that moment where they decide, is the city doomed? No, we're just going to rebuild it. And they kind of take a very proactive approach to being as smart about building as they could. We will talk some about the work that Adler and Sullivan did in Chicago, as well as other places, after we first pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House! 
house. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. Yes. When those legends get here, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You're here already. No, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The that's we the didn't problem. realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and didn't realize <laughs> well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. We talked before the break about why Chicago was such a good place to be an architect in the late 19th century. Additionally, there is a reason that Chicago is where the first skyscraper was built, although by modern standards, we'd think of it as pretty tiny. It was just 10 floors and less than 150 feet tall. That was the Home Life Insurance Building, built by William LeBaron Jenny, who you may recall Sullivan worked for at one point. So Chicago is on the shore of Lake Michigan, and it is hemmed in by the Chicago River. And in the late 19th century, it also had industrial yards that were kind of creating some barriers around the city that prevented sprawl. So where it couldn't build out, it very purposely built up. And Adler and Sullivan were in the right career and the right place at the right time to be part of this. While Adler and Sullivan worked on a wide variety of residential and commercial properties, one of their most well-known projects is the Auditorium Building of Chicago that was started in 1886 and completed in 1889. Leading up to this point, they'd worked on a number of music halls and theaters together, combining Adler's skills in acoustic engineering with Sullivan's talent for exquisite ornamentation. So a large-scale project that included a performance space was exactly the kind of thing they were perfect for. This was a mixed-use building project. It had to include, obviously, an auditorium with seating for 4,000, but also an office building and a 400-room hotel. Ferdinand Weiss Peck was a lawyer in Chicago who was also community-minded. He was on the city's Board of Education, and he was a founder of the Illinois Humane Society. And he was a strong supporter of the arts. And he spearheaded the auditorium building project, which was intended to make cultural events like opera accessible to all of Chicago's citizens, regardless of socioeconomic status. The hotel element of this project had been added to the plan as a way to subsidize the cost of running the performance space. 
But this entire project was not just an issue of problem-solving from an engineering and design standpoint. It was also an effort on the part of Chicago's business leaders to try to ease the tensions that had developed in the city as industrialization had created a very obvious separation between the wealthy and the poor who worked for them. Uh, They were hoping, like, hey, we'll all come together and enjoy the arts, and that might help smooth things out, which is a little bit of a... I'll just be kind and say idealistic way to look at the problem. (laughs) For context, just so you understand how kind of fraught the situation was in Chicago, the Haymarket Affair, which we have talked about on the show before, had taken place in May of 1886, just a couple months before this project started. This was at a time when the Marshall Field Department Store, designed by H.H. Richardson, was being built nearby. And that was inspirational for Sullivan in that it was not an overly done building. Richardson had opted to let the exterior stone be its own ornamentation instead of adding a whole bunch of additional pieces. For Sullivan, who wanted to break away from the traditional design that he had found so frustrating when studying in school, the Marshall Field building was like a green light. While finishing the auditorium building, Adler and Sullivan moved their offices to the complex's tower, And there, on the 16th floor, they had a full view of the city. This building looks solid. And it is, despite being built on a tricky base of unstable soil. Adler designed a really unique foundation for this structure with multiple isolated piers that each hold up their own sections of the building's weight. And those piers kind of sank into position as a floating foundation as the construction was carried out. A combination of wrought iron and cast iron support give the auditorium a degree of flexibility as well. Inside is one beautiful piece of ornamentation after another. There are luminous surfaces and intricacies just everywhere. There are mosaic floors, warm tones of marble and gilded trims, and the theater was one of the first to have electric lighting illuminating it, so all those beautiful finishes gave off a warm and inviting glow. Even the plaster used for the interior walls was carefully selected for the way it helped amplify sound without distorting it. And it was specifically designed for fire safety, with egress passages built into all of these beautifully adorned features. Later in life, Louis wrote in the third person about the design of the auditorium, quote, Louis's heart went into this structure. It is old time now, but its tower holds its head in the air as a tower should. So sweet. Another significant relationship began during the work on the auditorium building. Frank Lloyd Wright joined the firm as Sullivan's apprentice. And he was hired because this was a huge project and Sullivan really needed some help in the design of the auditorium. Wright understood his vision, so he came on as a draftsman. Soon, he was the project's lead draftsman. The auditorium building was not Adler and Sullivan's sole project. Their firm took on a lot of others while this structure was being built. One of those was the Wainwright Building in St. Louis. This project began in 1891, and it's significant because it was the first building to successfully implement steel frame construction. It's a 10-story building. The first two floors, which have a brown sandstone exterior, are emphasized visually over the upper floors. Floors three through nine have a brick exterior, and the tenth story has a more decorative outer finish, adorned with a scrollwork of leaves and circular windows and an overhanging roof. 
While the Wainwright building is often lauded as Sullivan's greatest technical achievement, we have to note that he did not originate the idea of using a steel frame to support a building. That goes back to his former employer, William LeBaron Jenny, who we already credited as having built the first skyscraper. But Sullivan innovated the idea by breaking away stylistically from the traditional architectural styles that had left other architects sort of stymied in terms of how they could add the height that a steel structure would enable to existing styles without creating a visual mess. It's kind of like if you imagine suddenly something like Versailles getting taller and taller and taller, it would be very strange. And that's why Sullivan was like, but what if we just change the style? (laughs) (laughs) Sullivan also designed a number of cemetery tombs in addition to buildings. Eliza Getty's tomb in Chicago's Graceland Cemetery is considered one of the most beautiful structures in the cemetery. Commissioned in 1890, it's a building that's solid and squared off, but also has a honeycomb design carved into it, so it references the natural living world while also providing a final resting place. It's sometimes considered the first example of Sullivan's entree into what came to be known as the Chicago School, which we'll talk about in a bit. In 1891, work started on the Charnley House. That's a residence that feels very familiar when you look at it if you know the work of Frank Lloyd Wright. And Wright worked a lot on the project, and during construction, Sullivan continued to show him the way that careful, beautiful ornamentation inspired by nature could elevate a building that was otherwise quite bold in its lines and materials. In 1893, several significant things happened for Sullivan. First, there was the Columbian Exposition. A name we mentioned earlier was involved in the planning, Ferdinand Peck, who was vice president of the Expo. And Sullivan had envisioned this World's Fair as an opportunity to showcase the emerging U.S. style of architecture. It didn't really play out as he hoped at all, though. Louis wrote of the exposition, quote, Chicago was ripe and ready for such an undertaking. It had required enthusiasm and the will. It won out in a contest between the cities. The prize was now in hand. It was to be the city's crowning glory. A superb site on the lake adjoined the southern section of the city. This site was to be transformed and embellished by the magic of American prowess, particularly in architectural aspects as to set forth the genius of the land in that great creative art. It was to be a dream city where one might revel in beauty. It was to be called the White City by the Lake. That location set aside for the expo was carved out specifically so tourists wouldn't see any of the less appealing parts of Chicago. Yeah, I mean, I think if you've lived in any city where a big international something has gone on, We've all seen this happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When it came to planning the site for the expo, landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, who has also come up on the show before, laid out the site. Architect John Root was the project's consulting architect, and his partner, architect Daniel Hudson Burnham, was named chief of construction. And Burnham had the idea to invite 10 of the most respected architects of the U.S. to participate, five from the East and five from the West, suggesting that each contribute a design. And Sullivan was, of course, among them. The auditorium building in particular had really put him on the map. Also included were William LeBaron Jenny, Henry Van Brunt, George B. Post, Robert Peabody, Charles McKim, and Richard Morris Hunt. 
The first meeting of all the architects took place in February 1891, and they were all to bring their design ideas with them. And this was, to be clear, a really significant moment. It was kind of like the all-star game of architecture, and it was recognized at the time as one of the most significant meeting of artists of all time. But John Root had died the month before the meeting unexpectedly, and he was not replaced. That was an incident that Sullivan would later describe as a, quote, shadow of a white cloud falling over the project. As the construction of the site was carried out and the expo opened, Sullivan was so disappointed by the whole thing. He later wrote in his autobiography, quote, the damage wrought by the World's Fair will last for half a century from its date, if not longer. It has penetrated deep into the constitution of the American mind, affecting their lesions significant of dementia. He found the fervor for replicating Renaissance and classic architecture to be just a complete letdown on the part of his peers. At a time when they could all be showing their originality, most of them had instead decided to go very traditional routes, except for Sullivan. He also described the people who had visited and then gone home to talk about the expo as people who were carrying a contagion. He really felt that part of the creative responsibility of the architects was, quote, an elevation of the public taste. He really did not see that at the Columbia Expo. The Beaux-Arts style was selected as the design style for the White City, with a court of honor surrounding a central water feature. But Adler and Sullivan, as a firm, did not do that. Their transportation building, designed by Sullivan, featured color and original ornamentation and an entry known as the Golden Door, which featured concentric gold arcs that recessed with each successively smaller curve, kind of inviting someone to walk in. This building was a huge break from the rest of the buildings at the Expo, and it got a lot of attention. A lot of people... Historically, of course, it got torn down because it was part of a a temporary expo setup. But uh, a lot of people have talked about how this was really an incredible achievement. But most people that visited the expo and the White City talked about it for a long time, having been impressed and reassured by the other people's nods back to history and what felt like, you know, a stable part of, of global history that would carry them forward in a way where they had built on the work of others. So we'll take another little sponsor break and then come back to talk about Sullivan's later years, which were rather difficult. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When those those legends get here, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You're here already. No, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The thing. That's we didn't the realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and didn't realize <laughs> well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. After the letdown of the expo, there was more difficulty for Louis Sullivan. The depression that followed the Panic of 1893 meant that all of the building projects that had been so abundant in the 1880s were no longer coming in, and the firm's resources really started drying up. Additionally, that style that had gained Sullivan so many accolades just a few years earlier was suddenly no longer in fashion. To add to that, Frank Lloyd Wright and Sullivan had a fight that severed their relationship. These two men had become very close. Wright was almost like a son to Sullivan. In 1889, when Wright had moved to the Oak Park neighborhood of Chicago, Sullivan had become the mortgage holder of the property and the house where the younger draftsman was living. And after his own home had been built, Wright had started taking commissions to design and build other houses like it in the neighborhood as kind of a side hustle to get some extra money coming in. Sullivan found out about it all in 1893 and fired Wright. There's been a lot of speculation about the ways the two men's relationship may have shifted over the years, with Wright probably outgrowing his willingness to just acquiesce to Sullivan's every order as his own skill and knowledge grew. We'll never really know what passed between them, though. They did reconcile, but not for about a decade and a half. (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, you know, part of that initial deal of, like, I will will pay for a lot of this, I'll I'll help you financially, meant that Frank Lloyd Wright could build this really impressive, beautiful house because he had some Mm -hmm. financial leverage and that that's what got it all. And uh, Sullivan kind of saw his other projects as, like, bootleg Adler and Sullivan projects, like basically going, oh, I'm a draftsman with them. I'll, I'll put this house together. Um, didn't, didn't go over well. And then Donkmar Adler left architecture. He decided to take a job with Crane Elevator in 1895, which he needed. They were not making money. And this caused a massive rift with Sullivan, who felt betrayed that his partner would just leave the firm. 
Sullivan seems like he was a grudge holder because even when Adler tried to come back to the firm just a few months later, Sullivan refused. This was a really, really foolish decision. Throughout their partnership, Sullivan had often been the creative lead on projects, but Adler was sort of the glue that held everything together. Whereas Louis was mercurial and wanted to focus on art, Donkmar was steadfast. He was really good at project managing all of their contracts from design through to completion, while also incorporating his considerable technical expertise. He was excellent at the administrative side of the business. He was really good with people, whereas Sullivan was not. While Adler was perfectly able to set up a new office for himself and continued to work steadily in architecture, Sullivan struggled. It's kind of obvious that Sullivan had some interpersonal communication issues. His sharp breaks with two different collaborators, that being Adler and Wright, in such a short time, that's a pretty good indicator. He was known to be arrogant and stubborn, and he lost out on jobs because of it. Additionally, it had largely been Adler's various contacts that had kept contracts coming in for them, and without that, it just got harder and harder to drum up business. Sullivan did have some notable and successful commissions in the later stage of his career, though. In 1896, the Garanti Building, designed by Sullivan, was completed in Buffalo, New York. This is a structure that's pretty interesting because from a distance, it looks very modern even today. It was built in a very similar style to the Wainwright building. But then when you see it more closely, you see that it is deeply ornamented terracotta on the outside. And it's like as you get closer, it feels like it grew right out of the earth. The Schlesinger and Mayer department store began construction in 1899, And this project posed an interesting challenge for Sullivan, who had been focusing on buildings that at the time were considered skyscrapers. This construction needed more emphasis on the horizontal rather than vertical spread. And as he had done with his tall office buildings, Sullivan focused on the first two floors as visually the most important, recognizing that these would be the ones people walking by would see the most. Because the building was intended for sales, it also meant that it needed to include wide windows that could be used for display, a contrast, again, to the usually taller-than-wider windows that were usually included in office buildings. In addition to being wider than taller, the windows on the first two floors were decorated with details that resembled picture frames. It was all designed to really appeal to passersby and invite them in. The whole building has beautiful botanical craftsmanship inside and out. Yeah, all of the motifs are so super pretty. Sullivan also got married in 1899 to a woman from California named Margaret Davies Hadabow. This marriage seems to have often caused historians and biographers to scratch their heads a little bit. It seems to have sort of sprung up out of nowhere, and it has grown even more confusing as people have tried to track down information about Margaret, who appears to have been pretty fast and loose with her own biographical details in her lifetime, often fibbing about her age and name. And this marriage is weird because it also took place at a time when Sullivan seemed to be pushing more and more people away, including his older brother, Albert. Louis and Margaret separated in 1906 after seven years of marriage. They never reconciled, and they were formally divorced in 1917, likely precipitated by Margaret's desire to marry someone else. 
In the years between the separation and the divorce, Sullivan really hit hard times financially. He sold most of his personal belongings at auction in 1909 just to have some ready cash to get by. Also in 1909, Sullivan lost the one employee who seemed able to tolerate his sour temper. That was George Grant Elmsley. Scotland-born Elmsley had worked for Sullivan for 20 years at that point. It's possible that some of Sullivan's more ornamental work during that time was really George's doing. While Elmsley was hired away by another of Louis Sullivan's former employees, this has to have been a blow. The next several years were dotted with a handful of projects that were much smaller in scale than the ones that Sullivan had become known for. Mostly, he designed banks, though one of the earliest of these, the National Farmers Bank in Minnesota, has been speculated to perhaps have even been Elsley's design. But it definitely has the spirit of Sullivan's style. These bank projects, which are quite beautiful, were nicknamed the jewel boxes. The work on these, as well as the Schlesinger and Mayer building, is often described as kind of the most unrestrained of Sullivan's life. But while his peers from the Expo were being hired to build huge project after huge project based on the classicist style they had embraced and showcased there in Chicago, Sullivan's projects remained small. Throughout all of his financial hardships, Sullivan had remained in his offices in the auditorium building tower. But as the 19-teens wore on, it became impossible to keep this space. First, he moved into a small office near the ground floor. That lasted less than two years, though. In 1920, he had to close up his offices for good. Often, he worked out of a single room where he lived sitting at his desk. He often had to ask for financial help from his friends. Yeah, he seems like he lived in a variety of places there uh, towards the end of his life, where sometimes it would be a hotel, sometimes uh, a friend would put him up. He was moving around a lot. But in his final years, Louis took on two projects. He wrote his autobiography, and he wrote a book on architectural ornamentation. And these books were actually commissioned by the American Institute of Architects in exchange for a stipend. I feel like probably a lot of his colleagues were like, we have to figure out some way to help him. And also, like, it would be very beneficial to have his thoughts on these matters (laughs) written down. His autobiography, titled An Autobiography of an Idea, which we've quoted several times here, is written, as we said, in the third person. It's really a pretty delightful read, particularly the sections describing his childhood. But he is also pretty venomous when writing about his colleagues in the architectural world in the ways that he felt like they sold out. His treatise, titled A System of Architectural Ornament, features 20 studies which he hand-drew, notating how he created original ornamental designs. But these walkthroughs of design ideas aren't just ornament. They really offer a guide map to creative thinking. Sullivan died at the age of 68, shortly after having seen the first copies of his book, He was laid to rest in the Graceland Cemetery near the decorative tombs that he designed, although his own grave was unadorned. Although he could be a difficult figure, even in his lifetime, Sullivan's contemporaries recognized really what an extraordinary talent he was. His ideology was that a structure's form should not hide its purpose, but be apparent about it, something that wouldn't find true footing until decades after he died. 
This concept of what he called honest architecture may have been at odds with trends in his later life, but it also cemented him as a singular voice in cultural style in the U.S. Many of the buildings Sullivan designed, including ones that we've talked about today, are now recognized as historically significant. Today, Sullivan is grouped in with William LeBaron Jenny, his partner Adler, John Root, and Daniel Burnham under the umbrella term the Chicago School, or the First Chicago School. This grouping recognizes the innovation that these men spearheaded in developing ways that construction and design could carry upward, creating the first skyscrapers and setting the foundation of architectural design in the United States. One of my favorite passages in Sullivan's autobiography really spoke to me as a representation of who Louis Sullivan was and how he perceived the world. This is not a particularly important passage. It's not one that comes up a lot when you see documentaries or or read articles about him. It's just a moment where he talks about the architect as a problem solver, and I really loved it. So he wrote, quote, As a rule, inventions, which are truly solutions, are not arrived at quickly. They may seem to appear suddenly, but the groundwork has usually been long in preparing. It is of the essence of this philosophy that man's needs are balanced by his powers, that as the needs increase, the powers increase. That is the one reason why they are herein called powers. Kind of love that. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if you're dreaming it, it's because you know that some part of it is, is a solvable problem. Uh, So that is the sometimes difficult, but always kind of inspiring, Louis Sullivan. (laughs) Yeah. Are you going to read some listener mail? I am. (laughs) I don't know why this made me laugh. Well, I do know part of it, but um, (laughs) this is from our listener, Sean. And he writes... Good afternoon, Holly and Tracy. I just finished the April 14th behind the scenes in which Holly mentioned someone touching tapestries in the Vatican. I cannot recall which of you lives in Atlanta. I'm pretty sure it's Holly. You are correct. Uh, Pretty sure you'll know what I'm referencing. Years ago, when my daughter was three, she's in her first year of college now, my ex-wife and ex-in-laws took my daughter and son to an art museum in or around Atlanta. There was a globe-shaped art installation hanging from the ceiling at the exact eye level of a three-year-old. And yep, before we could stop her, to our utter mortification, my daughter went up and slapped the globe, which started to swing. (laughs) Needless to say, we hurried out with the docents glaring the whole way. To the best of my knowledge, no permanent damage was done. As my own aside, I will say, I don't know that I would fault a three-year-old in that situation, but the person in the Vatican was a full-grown human who just (laughs) dragged his hand like 20 feet down a beautiful tapestry. Um, (laughs) uh, Sean continues, Again, I cannot recall which of you loves Bob's Burgers, a personal favorite. That is also me. I also wanted to mention, because I don't think anybody else has, that the show's episode 14 of season six, called Harmoniums, featured a conflicted Tina in a Mr. Frond musical about the deadly dangers of kissing because of Monica. A nucleosis. I was surprised neither you nor any listener mail, unless I missed one, mentioned this in reference to the September 14, 2022 episode on Imogene Recton's Kiss Not campaign, as the episode seems retrospectively to be drawn straight from history. Uh, I'm surprised I didn't think of that either, because I'm pretty obsessive about Bob's Burgers. Didn't didn't even come to me. Uh, that is a very funny episode, though, if anybody would like an entree into Bob's Burgers. 
Uh, anyway, your podcast is one I make sure to keep up with regularly, though I despair of ever listening to all the back catalog. You're always a joy to listen to, fair and honest, and dense with information, a feature I adore. Thank you for all your hard work. Then there are pet pictures. Chip under the Christmas tree, Belle staring at the camera, and Max on her twin granddaughter's pillow. Not pictured are the turtles and the bees. Um, these are very, very cute little yeah. fluffs that look like they were made in a factory. They're so cute. Adorable. Adorable. I will say, while we admire and respect the commitment for people who do choose to listen to our whole entire back catalog, it is not a requirement. No. Uh, I would be daunted. I would say not even an encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you go back to the very beginning ones, like, they're a totally different style and scope from what we are now. Uh, A lot of folks on there who uh, are wonderful colleagues who we loved and enjoyed working with, but, like, they haven't been involved in the show in years. So especially when people start with, like, episode one as the first thing they listen to, I'm like, you're. it's a whole different This is not going to give you a clear now. idea of what you're about to get. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, if you just want to, go ahead. I'm if you want to, go you. for it. But, yeah, <laughs> feel no pressure to do so at all. If you would like to write to us, no pressure there either, but it's super easy to do. You can do that at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you haven't subscribed, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.